This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 20th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. The Constitution is popular these days, but precisely how does it constrain federal power, particularly the powers of the President and Congress? Bob Levy is chairman of the Cato Institute. We sat down in November and talked for more than 30 minutes on several subjects relating to how libertarians think about the Constitution and where libertarians differ from modern conservatives and liberals. This is the first of a two-part discussion. We have a new Congress led by an energy from a group that claims fealty to the Constitution. They're worried about uh, adherence to the Constitution by the federal government. What are the three or four big principles that uh, these people and the voters who put them in office uh, need to consider? I think the three key principles underlying the U.S. Constitution are enumerated powers, uh, federalism, and uh, separation of powers. And taking those one at a time, the principle of enumerated powers is fairly straightforward. It starts with uh, the very first sentence of the Constitution, which says all legislative powers herein granted are vested in Congress. Now, those two terms, two words, herein granted, are critically important. And what it suggests is that there are no powers other than the ones that are herein granted. And then later in the Constitution, they're laid out, just in case anybody missed the first sentence, in Article 1, Section 8. And finally, capturing the whole essence of the concept of enumerated powers, the Tenth Amendment tells us that the federal government can only exercise the powers that are enumerated in the Constitution and delegated to the national government, and those powers that are not so enumerated and delegated are reserved to the states, or depending on the provisions of state law, reserved directly uh, to the people. So this is the guts of the Constitution, a government of limited, uh, limited powers deriving their powers from the consent of the governed. Uh, that notion of enumerated powers was the key concept that was to control government. But the framers understood that uh, the temptation for government to grow is considerable. And so they built in other safeguards. Uh, one other safeguard was the notion of federalism. Federalism is the concept of dual sovereignty. That's quite different than states' rights, which is the way some people think of federalism. This is not a matter of what rights states have. This is a matter of divided government, divided between the national government on the one hand, the state governments on the other hand, dual sovereignty with each level of government having a check and balance against the other. And just in case that wasn't sufficient safeguard, the framers also separated powers among the branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial, giving each specified powers and making sure that each would be a check against the other. So we have, for example, the judicial branch, which has the power of judicial review and can actually determine whether or not laws passed by the Congress are constitutional. And if they are not, it can invalidate those laws. On the other hand, the legislature is responsible uh, with the executive for nominating persons who serve on the judicial branch. And this is just an example of the ingenious uh, checks and balances that the framers built into the Constitution. Americans unlike people in a lot of other countries, have rights that are uh, enshrined by the Constitution, but are certainly uh, the rights that we possess are not limited by the words uh, in the document. Well, individual rights is uh, 
another key concept. Interestingly, the Bill of Rights, which is the repository of many of the rights that we think are so essential, free speech, religion, free press, protection against unreasonable searches, the right to keep and bear arms. The Bill of Rights wasn't uh, added to the Constitution until two years after the original Constitution was ratified. The original Constitution in 1789, the Bill of Rights ratified in 1791. And indeed, it was Madison, considered as the father of the Constitution, uh, who opposed the addition of a Bill of Rights. And he had two um, um, principles in mind when he suggested that a Bill of Rights would be unnecessary. The first was this. Since the foundation of the Constitution was built on the notion of enumerated powers, Madison thought you don't need to have a right against a power which the government may not exercise. So, for example, the right to a free press. Why, said Madison, do we need a right to a free press when we haven't given the federal government the power to do anything that would truncate the right to a free press? And that was one of Madison's notions. Now, he had a second, and that was that he thought that by including rights in a Bill of Rights, the inference would be created that any rights not thus included would be considered not to exist. <clears throat> he got around that, of course, by including the Ninth Amendment. The Ninth Amendment specifically says that the enumeration of certain rights shouldn't be construed as if those are the, all the rights that we have. Indeed, we have lots and lots of other rights, too numerous to mention, rights that existed before the Constitution was written, indeed, before the federal government was even uh, formed. Now, Madison ultimately changed sides, and even though he was originally opposed to a Bill of Rights, he joined the Anti-Federalists in uh, endorsing a Bill of Rights, probably because he understood that without the promise of a Bill of Rights, the states were very reluctant to ratify the Constitution. I think if Madison were asked, in retrospect, whether it was a good idea, to include a Bill of Rights, he would today agree that it was a very good idea because the notion that enumerated powers would constrain the federal government, I think, has come to uh, an unhappy ending, particularly when powers like those in the Commerce Clause, uh, the General Welfare Clause, and the Necessary and Proper Clause have been interpreted by the courts as very elastic in their limits and thus have enabled the government to do many things that Madison would have found abhorrent. And were it not for the inclusion of the Bill of Rights, I think Madison would agree that the federal government might have gone even further uh, than they have now been allowed to go by this notion of elastic powers. This gets into theories of interpreting the Constitution, specifically with regard to the Ninth Amendment. Uh, there's a whole school of thought that regards it uh, essentially as a non-entity, that it is uh, unimportant. These are people who uh, say they don't th like things like judicial activism. Yes, it's interesting that conservatives with whom libertarians are frequently allied on lots of issues, particularly domestic, regulatory, tax, budget, and fiscal issues, uh, conservatives and libertarians part company when it comes to this notion of of judicial review and judicial activism. Uh, judicial activism has become sort of a shibboleth of the uh, conservative movement. And what conservatives are concerned about, and I think legitimately concerned, is that if courts are in the business of establishing rights, that their business will lead them to establish rights that don't exist. 
That's the fear of conservatives, that any um, notion that there are unenumerated rights, rights not written in the Constitution, will create a government of unbounded powers enforced by a judiciary that finds non-existent rights. Now, the libertarian view is quite different. The libertarian view is that the answer to bad judging, and indeed, bad judging is a real risk, the answer to bad judging is good judging. And so we have to have judges with a theory of rights, and that means a theory of enumerated powers, of federalism, of separation of powers, and protection for individual liberty through limited government. The framers agreed with that libertarian notion, and that's why they put the Ninth Amendment in the Constitution. Whether conservatives like it or not, the Ninth Amendment does talk about enumerated rights. Even though Robert Bork, former Judge Robert Bork, thought that the Ninth Amendment was an inkblot because, he said, nobody knows what it means. It's as if someone spilled ink on the portion of the Ninth Amendment that would have identified the unenumerated rights that libertarians insist on. Just because Robert Bork believed that doesn't change the fact that the framers thought otherwise. They put the Ninth Amendment in the Constitution for a purpose. They would not have included a notion of unenumerated rights were it not for the fact that they believed we had such rights. The libertarian view of the function of the judiciary is to be very active at one thing in particular, and that is stepping in to stop the legislature from enacting laws that do not comport with the Constitution. And the courts have done that on roughly 150 occasions in the past when it's come to federal laws, and perhaps 1,200 or so occasions in the past when it's come to state laws. I haven't looked at each of those uh, federal and state laws, but I feel quite comfortable in asserting that if we were to look at them, we would find that we are very much better off without all of those laws on the books than they would have been if the courts had not been empowered to step in and declare those laws to be unconstitutional. Where libertarians also part company uh, with conservatives and uh, more so uh, liberals is the Tenth Amendment. That is, uh, the federal government, uh, its powers that are not delegated to it, um, it's sort of the flip side of the Ninth Amendment. Uh, Obamacare is one of the things being challenged that's posing a, a, a big uh, challenge to the Tenth Amendment. Libertarians have a different view of the Tenth Amendment than both liberals and conservatives. If you compare the libertarian view versus the conservative view, uh, the distinctions are fewer than the agreements. But there are distinctions. One is uh, that conservatives are more willing to federalize a good deal of law, both criminal and civil. In the criminal area, there's the war on drugs, for which there's no constitutional power. Criminal law, traditionally, historically, has been a state function. <clears throat> if you want to look at civil law, things like tort reform, malpractice reform as part of Obamacare, there is no power for the federal government to be dictating the terms of malpractice uh, lawsuits that are traditionally, again, assigned to uh, the states. Uh, the conservatives are also more willing than libertarians to uh, concentrate power in the executive branch. Uh, the libertarian view is that the branches were intend to be checks upon, intended to be checks upon one another, and the concentration of too much power uh, in the executive branch violates this notion of separation of powers that's been uh, this cornerstone of the Constitution for two and a quarter centuries. Now, the difference with liberals uh, is more profound, and that is liberals believe that the Constitution is this elastic document that can be molded, that's a living Constitution, 
that can be adapted to meeting changing to meet changing societal, cultural, economic, uh, technological circumstances. Um, former uh, current uh, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is the uh, foremost proponent of the living constitution. He says he wants the document to be malleable, one that can be adapted to changing uh, circumstances. Obama subscribes to that view, and his appointments to the court have been and are likely to be in the future uh, advocates of the living constitution theory. Uh, the response by conservatives is if you want a constitution that is uh, has structural flexibility, then the framers were not unaware of that uh, problem, and they provided a means by which the constitution can be amended. So if you look at Article 5, you'll see laid out there a provision for amending the constitution. It's been done 27 times. That's how we provide structural flexibility, not by ignoring the written document and acting as if uh, we didn't have a written constitution. Indeed, what is the purpose of a written constitution if it's not to establish some limitations on government? If indeed we treat the constitution as this living document uh, that can address uh, social uh, justice, uh, then what we have is an unbounded uh, uh, notion of federal power, quite to the contrary of what the framers uh, originally intended. A lot of what uh Congress used to do, they have delegated to agencies and regulators within those agencies. And uh, that has created a whole body of, of law that governs a lot of the decisions that we make today. How, how does that, let me ask, where is the authority in the Constitution for that, as far as you're concerned? Well, the short answer is there is no such authority. Uh, the, again, going back to the very first sentence in the Constitution, right after the preamble, all legislative power herein granted is vested in Congress. So Congress is our lawmaking body. Uh, the power of Congress is to uh, pass laws, not to make other lawmakers. Um, now, that said, Congress has routinely delegated to some 320 alphabet agencies uh, in Washington, D.C., either administrative agencies <clears throat> or executive agencies, uh, the equivalent of rulemaking power, uh, violating this notion that this power is not to be delegated. Uh, this is called the non-delegation doctrine. The courts have looked at this and essentially have said, we know the Constitution proscribes this sort of delegation, but Governing is a very complicated business nowadays, and we need the expertise that resides in these 320 administrative and executive agencies. And so even though the Constitution forecloses delegation, we're going to make an exception. We're going to allow delegation. If only Congress does this, it must establish what's called an intelligible principle, a means by which the agencies know how to flesh out the details of Congress's uh, legislation and know how to put flesh on that skeleton in a manner that comports with the intelligible principle that Congress has provided. Well, it all sounds good and well, but indeed nobody quite knows what the intelligible principle is when it comes to much of this delegation. And if you want a perfect example of that, uh, take a look at TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, uh, where authority was virtue to run the, the nation's financial system, was turned over to an executive branch, namely the Secretary of the Treasury. 
and Treasury Secretary Paulson decided that he was going to purchase toxic assets from the nation's troubled banks without any input or instruction or direction from Congress at all. A few weeks later, that changed. Instead of purchasing toxic assets, uh, he decided there would be a direct investment in these agencies. Along came his successor, Tre uh, Treasury Secretary Geithner, and decided what we needed was a public-private partnership, by which he meant that the public taxpayers would pay the bill and the private banks would get all the benefits. All of this was done without any input from Congress. And along the way, $180-some billion to bail out AIG and a few tens of billions of dollars to bail out the automobile companies. And that, by the way, was in the face of an express declaration by Congress that there was to be no automobile bailout. So what's the intelligible principle uh, guiding all of this? No one knows, uh, least of all the taxpayers who have to foot the bill. The intelligible principle seemed to be make things better, and that is not a coherent doctrine uh, by which executive agencies know how to make uh, laws and regulations that govern private behavior. Bob Levy is chairman of the Cato Institute. This was the first of a two-part discussion on the Constitution. You can get your copy of the popular Cato Constitution at our website, cato.org.